Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are again for another session of Baffling Combustions. My name is Sam Truitt. I am Sparrow. And my name is Andrew McCarran. And what we're going to do is keep going with the infinite journey of the Proverbs of Hell. Uh, You know, William Blake is at our shoulder. And there are some other characters who also are crowding in. And so we're all going to listen to this next proverb, which I believe we touched on in our last linear treatment of Proverbs of Hell. Um, Of course, last time we did... I contain multitudes and a segue, but now we're going back in and rapid. I feel like we're really making progress. So Sparrow, I think it's your turn. Wow. It's finally uh, my turn. Yeah. The bird, a nest, the spider, a web, man, friendship. And of course I'm a bird. My name's Sparrow. So I'm the right yep. person to read. And I'm the first exemplar here in this uh, sentence. So it's, fitting yeah and i'm a spider are you a spider (laughs) yeah i'm a spider centered in his him web or maybe i don't know i mean i feel like i am a we them web as in web (laughs) no we us no if you're a we are you an us or a them them I don't think there are we's. I was thinking to become a we. I was thinking if I had to choose a pronoun, I would like to go personally with we. But I don't think that's an option. I think you can just be he, she, or they. I don't know. Well, Andrew would know. You can be yeah. we. Really? You can be a we? Yeah. yeah. That's an option? Sure. You can't be an it, though, right? Um, well, I think you can be anything you want these days. Oh, really? I haven't encountered it. Mm-hmm. I've encountered mix. What's that mean, mix? That's like if you if you don't want to go with uh, Mr. or Mrs., you can oh. choose MX. Oh, mix. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So instead of uh, Mr. or, in our case, Andrew, doctor, yeah, one yes, could go right. for MX, MX, mix, Sam Truitt. I like oh. it. Or DX, Dix. What is that? Oh. What is DX? That's that's doctor? That's doctor. That's that's a a non-binary doctor, I think. Is that right? There is such a thing as Dix? (laughs) No, I'm just just making it up. 
Uh, oh, really? Gosh, I was like all ready to uh, reassign. I will. You were going to go with Dick's. Yeah, there used to be where I lived in the East Village. I lived on 11th Street, on 12th Street. There was a gay bar called Dick's. D-I-C-K apostrophe S. Dick's. And I went in there once to go to find out what time it was or something. I wrote a book called Dick. Oh, yeah, Dick. Yeah, about yeah. Tricky Dick, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, King Richard, maybe. But um, yeah, no, I'm now in the process of reconstituting as as Dicked. D-I-C-T. What do you mean, reconstituting the book? Uh, yeah, because there's a abundance of other material that I can apply to it. Uh, and mm -hmm. so, yeah, my astrologer said I have problems with communication, which I thought was really? kind of ironic. Yeah, but I, yeah, she told me that I have problems getting my message out. Like I have mm. a lot to say and I have a lot to give to, you know, this, um, residence on earth. And yet I have a hard time getting it across. Mm. And so... Yeah, that's when I started. Uh, yeah, that's when I started um, wearing tiger's eye because that helps me to focus my air. I don't have any air planets. She said that was a real uh, liability. In this oh, because air thing. is communication, right? Yeah. yeah, and so I wear tiger's eye against my skin to keep me a communicative, or I don't know. To give you air energy, tiger. Yeah, what is tiger? air energy. Tiger's yeah. eye is like a, a, a little semi-precious stone, right? Yeah, I think it's very semi, but yeah, right. Mm -hmm. I didn't yeah. know that was good for communication, the tiger's eye. Yeah, and I guess I'm wondering whether it's good for friendship. Well, why? Why? Well, I mean, I guess that friendship is in part constituted of communication, Mm. of listening and of speech, I mm. guess, right? I guess, I don't know. I mean, uh, I guess I sort of think of like real friendship, not that I maybe have these kind of friendships, maybe a little bit with my friend Jeffrey, who's kind of my oldest friend, you know, that we go to the Yankee game once a year and we kind of sit together and we don't have to say anything, you know. To me, I guess I think of like real friendship is when you don't have to talk. But who says that communication is necessarily caught up in semantics or in speech or in, in words? words? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's almost like we have so many memories and we have so many uh, stories that we share that we that we've used it all up. <laughs> we don't have to say. I hope he's not listening to this. You know, we, there's nothing more that we need to say. We've kind of said it all back, uh, you know, by 1997, we kind of said everything we need to say. And now we can just sort of harvest the silence that comes out of uh, communion. But I mean, I, I'm sure that when I'm with him, I'm constantly talking because I'm always talking all day anyway, mostly to myself because my wife doesn't really listen to me. Yeah, I mean, I just want to say that in a way we're segueing away, you know, as we're at from the proverb, you know, because to be honest, I read this proverb and I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. And I didn't feel like there was anything to add. Yeah. I mean, I think there's there, we can do an elaboration and it seems to be directed toward that last phrase, man, friendship. Well, I think that's what we're discussing. And, we're kind of walking around the idea of what is friendship 
I mean, in right. a sense, we are exactly discussing this proverb because it's very hard to know what is friendship and particularly how is friendship like a spider's web? I mean, a spider yeah, like has a, a web because he or she is sitting in the middle of the web hoping that a fly is going to fall into the web and then it's going to eat it. <laughs> So how is that web, which is a kind of a filamental connection of the spider to the outside world, and it, it communicates, you know, the spider is connected to the world through this web, and the spider's feeling for the vibrations, I believe, on the, on the uh, you know, uh, the particles of the web, the, the lines of the web. How is that like friendship? Quickly, uh, maybe I'm stating the obvious, ever reaching for low-hanging fruit, but all three things uh, are cradle, the cradles that sustain sustain, mm-hmm. us, sustain the living mm-hmm. organ, right? The nest, the web. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, you know, Mark Buber's come up a few times in our conversations. Mm-hmm. I think I, thou, if my memory serves correct, Buber refers to relation or friendship as a cradle. Oh, hmm. I don't remember. Oh, that's that. interesting. Yeah, as a cradle that sustains us uh, and allows us to grow beyond uh-huh. our local preoccupations and self-obsessions. I mean, the I I uh, dig that. I sort of felt in terms of that web and the spider is that the web increases the spider's or enables the spider's sensitivity. Hmm. Uh, that the web, it, you know, might be likened to a form of listening, perhaps a receptiveness. Um, mm-hmm. But that increasing of sensitivity, I think, is an attribute of friendship. I guess for me, the bird in the nest is sort of the nest is protective, you know, it protects. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the way personality guards our essence, you know, that the nest uh, allows the bird to be safe. And then the spider is exposed, you know, and is mm. reaching out, you know, so there's an inner mm. and outer. And then friendship mm. is this vast, not vacillation, but this going back and forth between those states of um, containment and safety, you know, being safe and also expansive and sensitive. Which one can mm. experience, I think, in friendship. Mm. Yeah, although he's sort of saying, I mean, linguistically, or what's the word, uh, grammatically, Blake is saying that the three are all similar. Uh, he seems to be saying that they're all sort of serving the same function, not that, I mean, I like what you're saying, but it it, it doesn't, you know, it's uh, it would be more grammatical to say something like, the bird has a nest, the spider has a web, but for man has both the spider, the web and the nest, you know, because he seems to be saying that they're all the same, the nest, this, the web and friendship, not that friendship is a combination of these two opposite traits. Aren't they all homes? Yeah, homes, yeah. I think right. the spider does sleep in the web, the way a bird sleeps in a nest, I believe, right? Where else is the spider going to sleep? And it protects the spider, right? The, the spider protects itself. It's 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 not subject to uh, rodents, and you know it's elevated. It's it's a it's a protected space. 
Although it's funny that you don't really think of yourself. The, I, I mean, to me, like you don't, by definition, live with your friends. If you live with your friend, your friend becomes a roommate, which is slightly different than a friend, it seems to me. All three things need the thing they're associated with to survive. Mm, that's nice. That's my, that's my thesis right now. This just um, came back to mind. There was this psychologist uh, at Harvard named Harry Stack Sullivan. He, oh, uh, yeah. I read him in graduate school, and uh, he worked with schizophrenics. Um, he developed a type of psychology that's called interpersonal psychology. Uh, and he, uh, he studied schizophrenics his, you know, much of his clinical career. And he claimed that he found one variable that was a through line hmm. um, present in all of his um, uh, all of the people he worked with, and that hmm. was the absence of a best friend, which he called the chum relationship. <laughs> this is the kind 50s. Of archaic term, yeah, exactly, in our fifties term, or maybe even earlier. Um, but th that uh, the people living in psychosis, um, almost mm -hmm. universally from his perspective, um, lacked a best friend, a chum relationship uh, in adolescence, I think late childhood through early adulthood, that there was something key oh. to establishing intimacy in a French mm -hmm. outside the womb of the family for later psychosocial health. Mm. Ah. Yeah. That was his. But, uh, that was his. But, but it's unclear, of course, whether it's uh, what's the word, chicken or the egg. Like, is it that schizophrenics can't make friends because it's too right. crazy, or is it that not having a friend turns you into a schizophrenic? It doesn't really know. You know, he can't really prove which way it goes. Right. Although he thought it was the latter. Oh really? Yeah. The he second... just thought like if you didn't have a friend, particularly at this developmental stage, right? That it would it would result in the schizoid. Um, uh -huh. or could result in the schizoid state. Just to underscore that and also, you know, move it slightly to the, to the left, you know, no doubt, sideways. Friendship. I mean, in terms of the nest and the web being containers, it's a friendship. That is, that <laughs> a ship is also something that is that. a guarded um, place um, relative yeah. to water. And moreover, the derivation of the word ship, you know, from the old English, S-C-I-P, uh, oh. it's cognate in Proto-Indo-European is to sky, which means to cut, to split, as in huh. schizo, hollowed out tree, you know, that's its derivation. Hmm. And that it's also, you know, it's related to schizo, to cut, to split. Well, because you, you cut a tree to make a ship, maybe, right? Right. Um, yeah. If it's the same word, you talk about the word ship, right? I mean, yeah. I think in friendship, it's some other, it's not the same word. It's, it's maybe has a different derivation. I don't know. The ship, oh, is like relationship. You know, it's funny because I've been obsessed with this guy, Norm, Norm MacDonald. He's a comedian that died recently of cancer. And I like got completely, you know, caught up in watching every single video of his that I could find on YouTube. I'm still doing it to some extent. 
And there's some point where he's talking to Conan O'Brien and he says, you know, a lot of people think the most valuable ship is, uh, would be one made of gold or one made of diamonds. And, and then he pauses and says, I'm not sure if such a sh if ship made of diamonds would actually float, but let's just say it would. And then he said, actually, but the most valuable ship is friendship. And Conan looks at him like just with immense annoyance and absolute delight simultaneously. Like this guy has chosen to make the stupidest possible joke, the most unhip joke, a joke that's so unhip, it's hip, which is kind of Norm MacDonald, you know, in a nutshell. Uh -huh. So he's making that point that you're making, is I think, uh, Sam, you know, that a ship, a friendship is a kind of ship. Well, the um, the use of ship as a suffix is actually yes. related to shape. Um, oh. Shep, 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 uh, <clears throat> which means to cut, scrape, hack. Um, so it also is related to that oh, cutting. Oh, I see. Okay. Oh, um, shape is related. Yeah, to like that. friend huh. shape um, mm -hmm. would probably be a fair uh, approximation to what, you know, yeah. friendship cognitively is derived from. Yeah. It means almost like friendness, you know, the, the quality of a friend, friend, friendfulness, <laughs> friendship. I, as I see it, you know, the suffix kind of suggests uh, some kind of generalization. You have a friend, but friendship is kind of the, the basic nature of having a friend, not just a particular friend, but... But the capacity the, and the... Yeah, the, sure. the, the whole process of having a friend. I mean, it's an interesting thought to go back to Harry Stack Sullivan that uh, makes kind of sense to me that what is a schizophrenic? What is a psychotic? Is someone who doesn't speak the language that we all speak. Someone who can't uh, compute within the the kind of the mathematics that is social language. Yeah. They're not fitting in. Why don't they fit in? Because there was nobody for them to learn the language from. They never had uh -huh. a chum that could kind of teach them. It's maybe something you can't learn from your parents. That idea of sh fitting in is interesting because, of course, that's related to shape also. Mm, right. To be neurocognitively deviant uh, means perhaps that you don't fit into the given model or given system, and therefore you're outside of it and therefore, you know, you're in a position of leadership. <laughs> you can lead well, people away from, <clears throat> you know, perhaps an outmoded model. I'm thinking of Donald Trump, who's a kind of a psychotic guy who is definitely in a position of leadership. Partly, you know, he seems to be incapable of friendship, of any real friendship. And, uh, and he's no doubt, a, you know, a major leader in the world today. Because he shapes the world around him. He doesn't have to worry about the, what's acceptable, what's conventional, what's logical. He kind of follows his own path. That's one. Or maybe uh, lately I read a book about Van Gogh. And uh, you know, I don't, it's hard to know how psychotic was Van Gogh. But 
I know when I was a kid, people saw him as pretty crazy. Now I think they just see him as a kind of a gentle, bipolar guy who was kind of uh, mistreated by his asylum. Uh-huh. But he also then was capable of being outside of the conventions, for perhaps, you know, compositional conventions of painting, and was able to, you know, one thing you notice in Van Gogh's paintings is that they have the taste of seeing things as they are, as though they were played mm. on the blue guitar. Hmm. Or, or you could say having like a visionary quality of things as, as they could be, or things <laughs> imbued with some kind of holy light that, that most people don't see. I mean, I guess I kind of mm -hmm. tend to see it that way. And in his time, I think I went to this art show of, at the Metropolitan Museum of this collector who organized the first solo show of Van Gogh after he died, of course, because during his time, I think he had no art shows. And even this, this gallerist who showed Van Gogh thought he was crazy, like saw his art as kind of what we now call, you know, outsider art or whatever the current, you know, uh, term is for it. So, you know, he even even the guy that gave him the show thought that he was like just a weirdo that wasn't exactly painting real art, but was kind of an interesting curiosity. So that's how uh -huh. far outside of normal art Van Gogh was in his time. I mean, he didn't have many close relationships, right? Other than Theo, his brother. Yeah, which is, you know, a relationship through letters, essentially, that's almost entirely. Right. Yeah. Well, no, he and Gauguin were very close. Mm. I don't know enough about Van Gogh's biography to ascertain his level, you know, his capacity for friendship. But mm. I do know that Van Gogh's reputation after his death and after the death of his brother Theo was principally carried by Theo's widow. And that That's she's right. yeah. the one talked about that set in this book, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting that, that she uh, recognized his importance. It's a little bit, like, you know, uh, like Emily Dickinson, who it was her sister-in-law, I think, that, uh, you know, created a, really a sensation almost around the same time. Elizabeth, uh, wasn't it Elizabeth Gilbert? Is that her name? I don't remember. I haven't read it recently. It sounds sister, like possible. Her sister-in-law, her brother Austin's wife. That maybe also she had an affair with? Isn't that a theory yeah. of it? It seems like there was intense philia. It seems to have been a charged relationship one way or another. And then mm. I think the brother died, you know, because it's an interesting question in terms of feminism that, like, I think in both of these cases with Van Gogh's sister-in-law and Emily Dickinson's sister-in-law, their brothers died and then the sister-in-law in that world back then is freed to actually do something. You know, she doesn't have to just make meals and you know, do the laundry like wives have to do. Now she's a widow and she can actually, you know, create a reputation of an artist. That, you know, that's a, an area. She has money probably. Her, her, I think Theo had some money. He was an art dealer. So she's sort of, you know, independent and uh, can actually change history. 
I'm really um, fascinated, Sparrow, and circling back to something you said earlier about the through a friendship, uh, being able to develop a communicable language outside mm-hmm. um, one's family, that yeah, developing that interpersonal poetics, that colloquial poetics with another person, as playing a very important role in a, a broader process of socialization and learning how to be in the world as a meaningful recognizable speaking being. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? It it does seem true to me. And I can kind of remember being 12, maybe 11, 12, when my best friend and I, uh, Bobby Marks, and I would walk around arm in arm, like two friends in Egypt. We would walk down the street arm in arm. And, uh, you know, we were best friends. We went to the Museum of Natural History together and studied dinosaurs. We collected Civil War cards. These were the obsessions of 1963 and uh, that we shared. And uh, I kind of remember there's sort of a feeling you have around that age that there's something your parents can't give you in terms of communication and communication, in terms of some kind of basic personality structure that you need somebody outside the family to to uh, nourish. I, I don't. It's hard. I can't put my word, my finger on what it is exactly. But otherwise, yeah. you become like a kind of clone of your parents. You're not. You're not a full person. Somehow. I remember maybe I was in fourth grade, about you know around the age you're talking about, maybe a little younger, in sleeping over a, a new friend's house, Timmy Baker, and Ooh. being on a cot, that twin bed. And, you know, his mother turning the lights off, time for bed. And the two of us just starting to, like, be- begin talking hmm. in, in a new sort of way. Hmm. And it just went on for hours. Hmm. Like, chit-chat. Like, we were developing a language. And it was the most delightful thing. And I, 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 what you said resonates with me. It really felt like it was filling a lacuna, some sort of absence, a gap hmm. that my parents or my brother couldn't fill. And it, it was intoxicating. I don't think it's ever stopped. With him, you mean? You're still no, friends with him? I think it started there, but, you know, I think it, it's, it's been a contagion. It's it introduced a form or capacity that I've shared with lots of people. And that, Right I, now, for example. <laughs> right now. And I think I get the, the, the web and the nest thing. I feel that it protects mm. me, gives me so much. Uh, I mm. would be in a rubber room without friendship. And, <laughs> I mean it. Do you remember what you talked about? You don't remember anything specific? You talk about like Hardy Boy books or whatever it is. I think it was that sort of. There was just but it was an excitement in mm. verbal di- discovery and just talking. Before that point, I think I just had less talking. There was more playing. Maybe we didn't have to talk. But at that developmental moment, I, re- I remember like mm. the deepening of language. Language deepening in a new sort of way. And in, in, uh, yeah. it being... A real giver. Like and that. you kind of becoming the you you are now. Yeah, I guess so, kind of right? Like, yeah, you know, like, there's like a way, there's a point where you're, you remember back and you were kind of like, I look at photographs of myself when I'm like six. I'm sort of stoop-shouldered. Uh, uh, you know, I look kind of uncomfortable and, you know, sort of burdened. I was like an old man a little at the age of six or seven. And then there was some point where I was kind of liberated from the whatever depressing weight of my family by uh, my friendships. 
because I think my parents uh-huh. were kind of miserable about the McCarthy era and being caught as communists, being branded as, uh, you know, uh, outlaws and ostracized from the world and having to watch themselves all the time. They were just kind of kind of broken people at that point. Maybe not later, but at that point. Jeepers. Yeah, it was kind of, a, you know, I sort of born into this, whatever the word is, political tragedy. Not yeah, that I was like aware a pall of it. It was cast distant. over your youth. Yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of a, you know, it was a, you know, and it was, a, of course, as a kid, even even a fairly old kid, you don't realize. I mean, of course, there's a lot of things to it. It's not purely political, but you don't really know what's going on. You just kind of feel it as this whatever yeah. uh, blanket I, over you. Yeah, I think one aspect that we haven't touched on is that the nest is not only for protection, but is also for nurturing children, for raising yes. kids. So there is like a, a developmental growth aspect to the nature of the nest. And I believe, you know, at least sort of like your conventional, like uh, Western spider and his web, you know, the way we think of spiders, you know, because uh, spiders are, have an infinite variety, you know, depending on environment, et cetera, et cetera. But that the web is also connected to those uh, those pods in which the um, the children are are um, incubated that are attached to the web. So the web is also part of that kind of rearing, nurturing structure yeah so it's interesting to think of friendship i mean you know just touching on your touching story andrew uh in the dark you know with your friend in a comfortable in a sort of nested circumstance Mm. in the dark like a spider and then the Mm -hmm. words coming out you know and being in that network being in that web Mm. and of some discovery the nature of which you're still uh, shaping. I, I think that if you were, it occurs to me, if you if you saw this proverb on an IQ test with the last word missing, you would say, um, the bird a nest, the spider a web, man, or whatever the current non-sexist term would be, Next. you would say the family. <laughs> Right. I mean, I don't know. I think I would have. I would be. I would say like uh, you know a brick house. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. But anyway, like you, a bird lives in a nest with its family. As far as I know, you know, the spider lives on its web with. If um, if Sam is right about these pods, and of course this is a podcast existing on the spider web, then this this. The first two are familial relationships, and the third one is that's the kind of punchline you're not expecting is the little, is that it friendship is what nurtures you, not the family, which may, you know may have been a radical statement in 1793 or whenever these were written. Huh? You mean that friendship is the next evolutionary stage from your New, uh, hmm, well, from your family. I wanted to say nuclear family, but I have no idea what that means. I really? think it's related to nucleus. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I use that yeah. term, nuclear family a lot. 
Should we move on to the next one? Which wow. maybe is your turn, Andrew. The selfish smiling fool and the sullen frowning fool shall be both thought wise that they may be a rod. Wow. I never noticed this one. Yeah, pretty unusually, I've written a question mark next to this one. (laughs) I'll bet. I think it's because of that rod uh, throws throws a rod. Well, I thought, at first I thought it was, I misread it as rude. And I thought, oh, it's that Anglo-Saxon poem, The Dream of the Rude, about the crucifixion. But that's not what it is. Uh, But in the Bible, in Exodus, uh, I know that a rod is a symbol for uh, authority. And what about uh, the 23rd Psalm? Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me, right? Isn't that the... uh, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Praise in the King James Version, yeah. King James in one of the Psalms, absolutely. So I... um, um, That's how I'm reading this one. The selfish smiling fool and the sullen frowning fool shall be both thought wise, that they may be a rod, they may be a source of moral authority. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's like the Shakespearean fool, I guess, you know, the, the truth teller. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the most, you know, like the porter, for example, in Macbeth, right, in the comedic interlude. Oh, is, he's, think, he's, he's, he's drunk. He's drunk, he's outlandish, he's profane. Right. He's yes. dancing around. He's, but he, you know, he um, expresses the deeper theology of that play. You know, he, he's he, what? He, you know, he's the one who who explains that. Oh, what is what? Well, people, you know, the Macbeths are grieving the uh, the death of an infant before the play begins. They're unable to conceive a child. Um, there's probably some sort of sexual <laughs> on Macbeth's part, but that's um, neither here nor there. Uh, they really love one another um, deeply. Mm. It, it's unprecedented in Shakespeare. Uh, it's like a, an example of modern um, romantic love. There, there's an equality there. They're both literate. They write letters mm. to one another. Uh, and they're, they're both grieving. And they both want to um, transform their situation. So I think one reading is that all of their political ambitions and even the violence, the regicide, the killing of Banquo, it's um, all compensatory. So much of it's compensatory. For the, for the death of the child, you mean? And Yeah, to the, whatever is grieving them and that being a big piece of it. That they're oh. trying to create a political dynasty. It's trying to find another form of generativity. I but see. It emerges out of... Um, you know, out of uh, love and care, like it's. Uh, but the but the porter um, references the primrose way to eternal hellfire. I think it is the primrose way to eternal hmm. damnation. Meaning what? Like this sort I, of good you, intentions. Yeah, you could end. You could start off with very good intentions and hmm. end up, you know, getting lost in the in the dark, hmm. doing terrible things or. I yeah, mean, that's I, fantastic, Andrew, about Macbeth. You know, I, I forgot that it begins with the acknowledgement of the death of their son. Yeah, I didn't remember that either. We don't and know I feel like I read it fairly recently, though I didn't. Yeah. I think it was 20 years ago. Anyway, um, so anyway, I think that's that's how I read the um, the proverb, that it's the, the fool with insight and some more authority and perspective and I mean, my, my feeling about these proverbs in general, which I think I've said many times, is 
I think that there's, or at least the way I read them, there's a built-in ambivalence to them. And so when it says uh, the selfish smiling fool and the sullen frowning fool shall be both thought wise, it's a little unclear to me. I think that what you're saying, Andrew, seems like a perfectly reasonable reading, but the, the way it's phrased, shall be both thought wise, could imply the opposite, that right. stupid people find these fools oh. wise, you know, because, and in fact, that like inferior people think they're wise and want them to be a rod, you know, inferior people want a sort of Donald Trump sort of tyrant ruling over them who is in fact a fool because they want that stern patriarchal rod, which of course is a, uh, what's the word, phallic symbol, if ever there was one. So, you know, it, it's not necessarily that these fools are wise, but that the, the that other fools want them to be, you know, want to imagine they're wise. I think that can be read there anyway. I, I'm really into your reading. I think it's, I think it's really, um, Spot on. It reminds me of that um, P- Charles Bukowski poem. Mm-hmm. Um, what's it called? Um, Born in- into this. Oh um, yeah, that's a famous poem. Yeah, it is. And there's this line about in, in America, we um, elevate fools to heroes. Huh. You know, it's a claim about um, American celebrity culture. I think you know, out in L.A. But. Huh. Uh, and, and you got to say, when you think, if you look at it, you know, that way, uh, it does concretize. You know, if you look at People magazine, for example, which I like to do. I mean, it was just the other day in the uh, CBS in Kingston reading all those uh, tabloids. And you certainly see selfish, smiling fools and sullen, frowning fools. That's pretty much what you see in those uh, celebrity <laughs> magazines, you know, narcissistic, good looking people and narcissistic, like cool uh you know uh, uh, frowning people yeah i guess i would lean toward your interpretation sparrow there is a slight kind of ambiguity what happened did we lose sam in the middle of ambiguity the word ambiguity yeah anyway what i was trying to say i mean i think i said it is that i'm not saying that either interpretation is what I agree with. I, I kind of, I like to think that Blake is is going for both interpretations at once. I think you're right. And I think that's that's actually increasingly a takeaway um, for me of this uh, literary work as a totality, that so sure. many proverbs can be read and, you know, at all sorts of angles and as opposites. And I guess that's part of his point, right? Just got back. I apologize. There was a spectrum truck in front of our road. I think they put in a box. I think I'm now under surveillance. So, you know, I'd have to look into Blake's body of work and see how he treats the nature of fool. Yeah. But one thing that occurred to me relative to what you, you know, were citing Bukowski speaking of is the situation around Bob Dole and his dying. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bob Dole, you know, I I have a sense of the shape of his life. And to be honest, he edges right into this terrain, this 
um, comedy, tragedy, fool, you know, the sullen mm. and the, yeah. The, um, mm. the reason why I say this is that Bob Dole was asked at the Republican convention, you know, are you, a, do you want Donald Trump to be president? And he said, yeah, we should, we should all go with Donald Trump because he can win. So while at that Republican convention, there were many folks of that stripe who spoke, you know, sometimes eloquently against nominating Mm -hmm. Trump, like he was going to be a real problem. And Bob Dole wasn't of that camp. He said, we can win. And, and, you know, admittedly, he was quite old at that juncture and maybe wasn't in possession of sort of all of his faculties. But that was a foolish thing to say. He's a man from Kansas. He voted for him again. He voted twice for, for Trump, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, he voted. Oh, again. my God. And also, he was a fanatical uh, supporter and hatchet man for Nixon. So, uh, you know, he's not exactly a saint, uh, Bob Dole. You know, he's just from the old uh, Republican establishment <laughs> where it's a little bit of a surprise that he would agree to go with Trump. But himself, I mean, I have a kind of relationship with him because I wrote this book, Republican Like Me, about my campaign for president in 1996, which was my second campaign for president. And a lot of my campaign was uh, attacking Bob Dole. I didn't want to attack Bill Clinton, who I supported. And so I thought a lot about Dole. And... Uh, Well, let me ask you this question, Sparrow. Was Bob Dole thought wise? I don't know that he was ever considered wise. They had this, I read, you know, some of the obituary in the New York Times, because my dad gets the New York Times, and now he has macular degeneration, so he can't read it. So when I'm visiting him, I'm out of guilt, I read it. And the the only thing, the most vivid thing I remember about Bob Dole in this crazy obituary is that he had this balcony you know, he was the Senate Majority Leader, so he had a very nice office looking out at the Washington Mall and, and including a balcony. And he, he said, famously said, he had the second best view in Washington, I guess, after the White House, after the president. And Dole spent a lot of time sunbathing on his balcony to keep up his perpetual tan. A little foolish. I don't know if it's foolish. It just seems... Uh, there's sort of an absurd quality to it as a as a hobby for this guy who's one of the most powerful people in Washington. Just to circle back, would you concur yeah. that there's something foolish around Bob Dole? And then yeah. what I've observed, because I, you know, I, I like to watch, um, you know, different scraps of news and I listen to this and listen to that. And there's this funny energy in which I feel as though in memoriam, He's being presented as a sort of wise, tutelary spirit of a time that has passed. You know, the, um, the what do they call them? The greatest generation. That's right, yeah. Yeah. I think um, he said greatest of the greatest generation. I think it was in this, I don't know if it was Biden who said it, but, you know, people are generous to the dead, except us, apparently. Think no less of me for me casting these 
these cloudy, you know, thoughts over, you know, Bob Dole. No, no, I think it's perfectly um, fine. No, I, don't I mean, I, I, frankly, I really like people, broadly speaking, and I'm sure Bob and I would have gotten along famously. That's um, true, but, I could see that. You lived in Washington but, at the same time, you and he. He wasn't part of my set. Right, and vice versa. Well, uh, what I was going to say is, here's a guy who, uh, Bob Dole, who ran for president, he he spent years trying to be the presidential nominee. He finally ran in 96 and really soundly thrashed by, by Bill Clinton. And so I think winning for him was a very vivid question. He understood losing. Although the article in the Times kind of implied that he was sort of a sacrificial lamb, that they realize or realize they're not going to win in '96. Bill Clinton's a very popular guy, hard to beat. So they they said, ah, we'll just give Bill a chance. He's been trying for decades to be the nominee. Badly beaten like him, you want to win. That sense of wanting to win which is an mm. interesting thing to have arisen in Bob Dole. Coming out of the Second World War in three years, mm. was it three, was it five years, and some forms of, um, you know, serious rehabilitation. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and then, you know, moving forward in this political world, and then that interesting consuming desire to win seems to me associated with the rod, yeah, yeah, I know. I was thinking of the rod, too. Yeah, yeah I think to that it's like a torch. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's acoustic, for sure. Yeah. Yep. It's kind of easy to see uh, Blake. You know, it's hard to know if one's projecting this onto him, that he's a little suspicious of the patriarchy. Uh-huh. The, the whole idea yeah. of the rod, the strong king who rules with a mighty hand who is also God, who, come to think of it, um, Blake is also uh, suspicious of, suspicious of God, then uh, it does does make sense that these fools are, maybe he's even talking about God when he says the selfish, smiling fool, sullen, frowning fool. If you read the Old Testament, that is a fairly good uh, description of the two faces of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I I think also though the God the rod is associated with God, mm. and the rod I think is also associated with aspiration. Like it's something that you reach for. Um, you know, I think that there are different games like oh, I see what the you flag. Mean. Yeah, mm. where you know you grab the rod. You know, there's a foot or, race, you know, or, or something like that. Baton. Yeah, there's, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or maybe the so Olympic then, torch, which is passed. Right. From person to person from the racers. Yeah, and then that person is feasted, is um, held up for emulation. Um, mm. And so, you know, what happens is that selfish, smiling fools and sullen, frowning fools they become uh, objects of um, ambition and aspiration for people. Oh, people want to be like them. Yeah. Well, I guess that's 
what celebrity is, you want to be like the others. A celebrity is someone who not only wants to be like other celebrities, but has succeeded in becoming like other celebrities. And in a sense, it's kind of what we're all after in the USA. We all have our Facebook pages, you know, maybe not every single one of us, but even those of us that don't have them metaphorically uh, have our image that we're uh, cultivating a kind of fame. It's a kind of like small potatoes fame that we mm. kind of make ourselves into these, you know, kind of idealized fools. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, there's something to that. I mean, I I tend to self-ascribe my horticultural ambitions and cultivating into my work. And I and I hope I tend to be less sort of trying to craft a personality um, mm. structure, you know, or um, some incarnation of myself that's um, ideal or something. I'm not sure. Question is, what do you do when you're in front of a mirror and nobody's around? I mean, uh, I know that I uh, work on my image in those cases. I, I look at myself. I wake up in the morning. I look a little haggard. Then I like give my you know, trademark dazzling smile to myself. <laughs> Try to reconstitute uh-huh. my wise sparrow, <laughs> my elegant saint-like demeanor. You know, I try to summon that up to sort of uh, impress myself. <laughs> uh huh. I hope everyone does that. If they don't, fine. But I, uh, I've just admit, you know. If they don't, then it's kind of an embarrassing admission. It's very very telling, you know, it's very brave (laughs) or wise Uh admission. Do do you feel as though you're like an actor and that you have a certain role and that that's tied up with some of those attributes that you can recognize like in a mirror? But they reflect something that's deeper inside that you're that is your real rod. I mean, my friend Eli, he showed a picture of me to this friend of his who was a psychic, I think. And the guy said, Oh, that guy, you know, speaking of me, he said that guy is really trying to be spiritual. It's like here's this guy that doesn't even know me, and he's completely convicted me correctly. Ha <laughs> ha. I thought, oh my God, I'm that transparent with like a stranger. Of course, he's a psychic, but still, <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing. I mean, well, I mean, are you asking, is there some deep wisdom inside of me that, that my persona embodies? Well, maybe. Hard to distinguish ones. I think it's a very, I mean, if I had to say, I think it's a very complex interrelationship. I think, you know, there is some wisdom inside of me, perhaps, and uh, there's a lot of fakery, and the two are kind of tied together. You, you, you know, I, I don't think I'm a complete fraud, but I'm, you know, maybe 92% of fraud. <laughs> maybe 78% of fraud. I don't know. <laughs> and then maybe someone like me that doesn't have a job, really, and doesn't really do anything. A person like that, their persona becomes more important because their persona becomes their, uh, oh, their job, you know? Their product. Yeah, well put, yeah. Yeah. Well, in terms of this idea of rod, which I really don't know what rod means. I think I'd said that earlier. But I mean, do we each have a rod that we're reaching for? 
Oh, in the sense of reaching for some achievement? Stick, yeah, reaching for some, yeah. That's sort of a bourgeois, it seems like a kind of bourgeois thing. I guess, well, when you put it that way, I don't know. I don't know if it's, it depends what it is. Maybe, you know, if you're reaching for like the perfect uh, brie, maybe that's very bourgeois. If you're, you know, you're reaching for world revolution, maybe it's not bourgeois at all. I don't know. Comes to mind for me is just you know my goal to be a good writer, great writer, <coughs> masterpiece writer. I, I mean that's what comes to my mind. I'm sure I'm reaching for lots of, you know, I'd like to be a nice husband at the moment. Uh huh. I hear you. What about you, Andrew? What are your thoughts around this idea of the rod? Well, I mean, I, I think it um, is moral authority, and or it could yeah be what we're reaching for. I like everything that's been said. I think it's interesting to point out that so many of these symbols and so many of the proverbs um, can be read from multiple angles. So there's, there's, you know, the truth is a moving target across the proverbs. They're slippery and fluid in an interesting way. They're beyond being right or wrong, right? They're beyond, uh, what is that phrase of Nietzsche's? Beyond yeah. good and evil? Yeah. Well, it's the marriage of heaven and hell is the larger book that that alone suggests some kind of reality. Definitely, lest we forget. I'm sort of thinking we should read one more. Like, have oh, a really, really ambitious okay. session. Yeah, I'd like to read one more, and then maybe we could touch on that. Uh, this is this is it. What is now proved was once only imagined. Huh. Wow, nice. Very different than the last few. What is now proved was once only imagined with that nice apostrophe D imagined. I'll tell you what it reminds me of actually is like Swami Muktananda in um, Carnegie Hall. <laughs> and the only thing I remember him saying is he said something like everything that exists is the product of human thought, something like that. And uh, and I looked around at Carnegie Hall, and you know, which is very baroque and you know, sort of elegant. And I thought, wow, this was all a thought before it became a building. Somebody thought it, hmm. and now I'm sitting inside of it. <laughs> it's like a thought that you can sit inside of, and uh, and that is sort of similar to uh, to this proverb to me. Yeah, I feel like it's almost like in other words. I think pointing in the same to the same place. Yeah. Yeah, except that the word proved, now that I look at that, what is now proved was once only imagined. And and a building is not exactly proved. Proved is a theory, a thesis. So that's funny word, proved, kind of a scientific word, actually. I think it may have have to do with because it wasn't like Blake in a big war against Newton and against rationalism. I mean, this is kind of I mean, Blake, if you if you believe that Blake invented romanticism, which I could find myself believing, he certainly seems earlier than the other famous romantic. He well, is saying something like the rational mind is uh, limited. And that far beyond it is the world of imagination. I think that's kind of the essential idea of romanticism, if I understand it correctly. And um, so what was once, what's now proved, in other words, all the Newton's laws are now been proven, but at one time 
they themselves derived, emerged from the imagination. Even rational rationality started as imagination. I, I don't know if that's right, but that's kind of, you know, that being the meaning of this mysterious phrase. I was thinking of this the other day, like this, there's the three laws of thermodynamics, they're laws. I'm not sure exactly how something gets to be a law. <laughs> you know, what are the other theories? Marxism, I guess, is a theory. Psychoanalytic theory? Uh, yeah, that's a good example. All the psychological uh, doctrines, or whatever the word is, uh, yeah. schools, let's say, are all theories, right? There's none of none of them are laws. There's not the law of the Oedipal complex. Is not a law. <laughs> Thank God that I can that I can think of, right? Uh, Andrew, you can't think of a psychological law. There must be laws within behavioral psychology. It's interesting. But I mean, it's a practical statement, also. What is now proved was once only imagined also can, you know, refer to Einstein. Theory of relativity is a theory. Yeah, and really the whole of the 19th century was one in which, you know, incredible things were imagined Mm. and were later proved. Like the law, like evolution, I guess, being the most famous Although, again, that's a, a theory. It's never been, it can't be proved. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's an accepted theory. I don't think that there's any serious scientist doesn't believe, doesn't accept it. But for some reason, it doesn't quite. Uh, the laws, I think, tend to be very primal. You know, like there's law. Aren't, isn't mathematics aren't there like the, the law of commutivity? Aren't those called laws? Well, I think things that can be expressed in mathematical language have a far higher percentage chance of becoming laws. Whereas those things that are based on any form of interpretation, they, I guess, do not uh, have sufficient um, self um, analyzable structure to pass as laws. That sounded weird. (laughs) Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.